Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for show number 149. Only one more show here, and then we'll have, uh, we'll be next week, we'll be at 150. A nice round, big number. I'm sure we'll do something special for that. Uh, or not. <laughs> anyway, this is coming to you with video on YouTube as well as uh, on podcast format in uh, Google Play, iTunes, and Stitcher. So welcome, everybody who's listening or watching. Uh, this week, I decided that I would tackle Scientology's war with psychiatry. And uh, this was actually prompted by an academic paper that was sent to me by uh, Stephen Kent. He is a professor at the University of Alberta in Canada. And he, back in 2012, put together a paper um, with a student of his or a graduate student of his named Tara Manka, who I have been in touch with. She was uh, happy that I was using this paper to do a podcast on. I invited her onto the show, but we couldn't um, get her on until later this year. I'm looking forward to that. Also, I met Stephen Kent uh, finally in person at the International Cultic Studies Association conference that I went to last week. And he was a real pleasure to, to meet in person and, and interact with. And I've done um, some private Skyping and emailing with him for, for quite some time, actually. Um, but he also cannot be on my podcast for a while because he's embroiled in various um, things of a legal nature. I think he's consulting on some cases or something. Anyway, he, he'll, he'll, we'll, we'll get him around uh, before too long. But um, I, I very much would like to... Um, to get him on. I have done talks, many, many videos in the past, a whole series, in fact, you can find on my channel, just dissecting and deconstructing some academic papers on the subject of Scientology. And pretty much those papers were what amounted to what I called uh, academic apologism for Scientology. They were really just rehashing Scientology's propaganda materials for the most part. And it was, um, at best, very lazy academic work, uh, very lazy research, or, uh, you know, at worst, maybe these people were even, uh, sub, you know, somehow uh, paid off or given grant money or given status or somehow um, given something by the Church of Scientology in order to write papers favorable for it. But I have to be a little careful about accusations in that direction, and I don't mean to tarnish anybody's name uh, unjustly, or you know, but those papers, some of the some of the papers that I've seen academics write, especially in the field of uh, sociology, is where I see this them, them fall down the most on this. Um, when it comes to them writing papers on Scientology, they miss the mark almost a hundred percent of the time. So it was refreshing to get this paper from Stephen Kent, who has been a long time, um, uh, per, you know, foe of Scientology. I will say. Uh, from his position as an academic. He was never a Scientologist, never really, uh, I don't know what his religion is. I have no idea what his personal views are on these things, but he has uh, amassed an amazing library of materials. He showed me some photos uh, when I was, uh, when I met him uh, of, you know, the amount of material he's put together. It just boxes and boxes and shelves and shelves of stuff. Hope, someday I hope to be able to get up to Canada to, to go through some of that material because it's extensive. And I think it would be well worth my time. So the paper that was written was called A War Over Mental Health Professionalism, Scientology versus Psychiatry. And this was, this was uh, the final version of this came out October 3rd, 2012. And it was written for a journal called Mental Health, Religion, and Culture. And I'm going to quote from the paper throughout my uh, podcast here today, but of course, I having been a former Scientologist and really steeped in the literature in Scientology about psychiatry, I um, I, I, re I read some books uh, that the church had put together or that Scientologists independently had written about psychiatry and the, the dangers of psychiatry, and I took that stuff very seriously. Um, when I was in the church, I thought that Scientology was the one and only and best solution to any mental health troubles or problems that people were having. I thought we'd, you know, had it all figured out, that L. Ron Hubbard nailed it. 
with the theory of the reactive mind and past incidents of, of stress and trauma and pain and unconsciousness called engrams and how you could relieve those engrams by a sort of regression therapy of going back in time, casting your mind back to those incidents and, and talking about them, going through the incident as though you were reliving it over and over and over again. And I thought that that really worked. I thought it was universally workable. And therefore, I thought that we had solved, you know, because Hubbard said we had solved psychosis, we had solved neuroses, we had solved any and all mental illnesses. And because I saw that psychiatry was not exactly lining up all the people who were cured of depression and anxiety and, and psychosis and schizophrenia and all these terms that I grew up with, I thought, well, they're not curing these guys, so what do they know? <laughs> so it was pretty easy to justify an, an opposing position to psychiatry uh, and call psychiatry. When I was in Scientology, I actually used to call psychiatry pseudoscience. <laughs> and it wasn't, and what we're going to go over here on this podcast is that I wasn't entirely unjustified in doing that. There's, uh, there's some history here, and, um, and Kent and, and Tara Manka go, go into this pretty, pretty objectively in the paper, and I thought it was uh, pretty good. Here was sort of the abstract at the beginning of the paper that they um, give here, so I'll just quote from this. Over 60 years ago, founder L. Ron Hubbard began what has become Scientology's greatest battle. Scientology emerged from Dianetics, which Hubbard hoped would replace the psychiatric profession. In this article, we discuss how Scientology attempted to position itself as a rival profession to psychiatry and the consequences of those attempts. Scientology's battle with psychiatry gained some success from the social conditions during which it emerged, but it continues in a time that has seen increasing success with various psychiatric treatments. As such, Scientology's direct influence on the psychiatric profession may be difficult to measure, but its actions have coincided with substantial challenges to psychiatry, end quote. So yeah, Hubbard was taking on psychiatry almost from the very beginning, and I have noted in some of my videos in the past that he was merely knocking the competition. But I think there was a little bit more to it than that. And in reading through this paper, there are certainly some, um, some evidences of that. But what I mean is that L. Ron Hubbard talked about the horrors of psychiatry and the, the problems with psychiatry, and some of what he was talking about was absolutely true. Um, but they rejected all of his work prior to the publication of Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health in May of 1950. Hubbard submitted papers to the American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association showing them the work that he had put together and saying, hey, I think, we've, well, I think I've got some new therapeutic technique here. And they rejected it just out of hand. And I don't know that I think they said that it lacked evidence. There were various statements made about why they weren't so interested. And I think Hubbard then being a, a person who did not deal with criticism well in any area of his life and who actually talked about the fact that he did not deal with criticism well in many of his lectures, which he gave to Scientologists years later. He talked about how if somebody criticized his writing as an author, as a fiction author, he would come down on them like a ton of bricks. He didn't talk about this as a character flaw, but in hindsight, I can certainly see how it was, because he also wrote a lot of um, his, his vindictive nature ended up being written into the DNA of Scientology through its various policies, where they, you know, manifested as um, ruining, you know, critics utterly if they were to speak out against Scientology or challenge Hubbard's authority in, in, in some fashion. Um, you know, like Cartman on South Park, Hubbard was not into being challenged. You know, you will, you will respect my authority. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was very much into that. And, uh, and of course, one of the, the, the huge logical fallacies in Scientology that it's all based on is appeal to authority. Hubbard presents himself as this, as this authority figure, which is really an unearned status. Uh, Hubbard didn't ever do much of anything to gain any educational um, background or, or practice in, um, you know, in putting something together that would be a, a, a valid evidence-based challenge to psychiatry. He merely wrote Dianetics and Modern Science of Mental Health, which 
many people have correctly <laughs> criticized as a bunch of word salad. <laughs> so anyway, Hubbard knocking the competition and that sort of thing is one aspect of the war against psychiatry. But I think also that it came from his feelings of, of, of rejection uh, before he'd even published Dianetics and, and the vindictiveness that he felt you know, towards medicine and psychiatry specifically as a result of that. Uh, here's another uh, quote about that, actually, from the paper uh, that the uh, Kent and, and Taramanka wrote. Quote, prior to initiating his war on psychiatry, Hubbard promoted Dianetics to psychiatrists with hopes that Dianetics could supplement or even replace psychiatry's knowledge base. For example, in his 1950 book, Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, Hubbard marketed unique therapies as solutions to problems that legitimate professions of the early 1950s could not relieve, end quote. And of course, we refer there to psychosomatic illnesses, which Hubbard said comprise something like 75 to 80 percent of all physical illnesses. I have no idea where he got that statistic from, but that's what he said in Dianetics. He said that with the, pro with the use of Dianetics, you could relieve uh, cancer, leukemia, bad eyesight, poor memory, um, that you could actually bring a person up to having eidetic recall, which means full three-dimensional recall of sight, sound, taste, everything uh, that's ever happened to you, uh, a claim that I've never seen manifest in, in reality. Uh, so he made a lot of claims, and he was marketing these claims in, in his book. Hubbard, over the years, had a bad habit of over-promising and under-delivering, which, of course, led to Dianetics going bankrupt within the first two years of its publication uh, and going bankrupt twice. But in taking on psychiatry, Hubbard was, was very, very serious about this. And there was only, I think there was only one place I can remember in a lecture he gave where he said, you know, look, this whole war against psychiatry is really kind of silly and and really we could stop and, and, and partner up with psychiatry and we could do a lot of good. He actually admitted that in a lecture. He didn't say that exactly, but pretty much words to those effect. And, um, but for the most part, besides that one anomaly, <laughs> when maybe Hubbard was having a particularly lucid day or something, um, all of the other literature in Scientology is rabidly anti-psychiatry and anti-psychology. Um, Hubbard in his early days was, was saying that they owed a debt of gratitude to Freud and, and some of those early practitioners of psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. But very soon after um, those initial publications, he was trashing them. And by 1968, he, uh, in a class eight lecture called Standard Tech Defined, L. Ron Hubbard um, just trashed Freud and Brower, uh, Bauer, whoever Freud's partner was, I don't know, Breuer, um, just trashed them. I mean, just said that it was a complete control operation that was meant to enslave people and that they knew what they were doing and they did it with malice aforethought. And he, um, you know, claimed the whole thing was a, just a big fraud and always had been. And it had never had any good intentions or um, no one who practiced psychiatry or psychology. The, these people were not um, doing what they were doing because they were trying to help people. So he, he had gone, you know, completely around, uh, you know, uh, from, from acknowledging a debt of, of gratitude to these people. He had, you know, within 20 years, he had completely flipped the narrative. And in 1969... They founded, uh, the Church of Scientology founded a group called the Citizens Commission uh, on Human Rights. Uh, it might be the Citizens Commission for Human Rights, CCHR. And this was an effort, a, a premeditated and calculated effort by 1968-69 to literally take over the field of mental health entirely and just eradicate psychiatry and psychology from the books. And there were a bunch of articles that Hubbard started writing for Freedom Magazine, which was also, also started being published in 1969. And he was writing about science and technology and how they had been suborned by vested interests and how psychiatry was used as their mainline technology of control. And this is, this is where I've spoken and, and made videos on my channel about 
vast conspiracy theories that Hubbard put together, which involved psychiatry being the heavy, being the strong arm, and how psychiatry was used to silence political dissidents or you know anyone who disagreed with the mainline party line uh, activities that these con that these global conspirators were pushing in order to control the world and make you know one nation, one world government, all of this classic conspiracy theory rhetoric. So let's go back to how this all started. Um, Hubbard found a willing audience in the 1950s, in the early 1950s, and he spoke dramatically but actually uh, kind of honestly about the horrors of psychiatry. And I, you know, I, I have to give, uh, you know, it, it, it pains me to say that Hubbard was, was speaking sooth <laughs> about this subject. And, I, and maybe I shouldn't say kind of and use these limiting kind of words because he, he actually did. He was calling out some of the most horrific practices of psychiatry and he was right to do so. We'll talk later in the podcast about how Scientology compares with psychiatry because Hubbard, of course, positioned Dianetics and then Scientology as the solution to this when, in fact, they are uh, actually even worse. It would be like, um, you know, handing, handy, handing somebody who was choking a, a, a glass of absinthe or something, here, drink this, you know, this will be good. Here, have this hemlock. It'll help you. You know, that's, that's sort of my take on on Scientology as an alternative solution to the horrors of psychiatry. Um, so in going through the paper from Kent and, and, uh, and Manka, um, they talk about, honestly, they talk about psychiatry's position in the 1950s when, when Dianetics came out and what was going on and some little history on this. So I'm going to quote from their paper. Quote, when Scientology emerged in the 1950s, psychiatry's public support was dwindling along with its ability to hold exclusive power. In 1847, the American Medical Association was founded and opened membership to psychiatrists. At that time, psychiatrists refused to join because they received higher status and greater income than medical doctors. This status, however, declined as psychiatric practices raised public controversies. Between World War I and World War II, psychiatry utilized several controversial therapeutic interventions to treat some severe conditions. The most common of these controversial treatments were insulin shock treatment and electroconvulsive shocks in response to severe chronic depression and prefrontal lobotomy ostensibly as a response to severe behavioral problems. No psychiatrist could explain why the first two of these treatments proved somewhat effective against depression, and contemporary psychiatry still uses electroconvulsive shocks to treat major depression, manic aspects of bipolar disorder, and some instances of acute schizophrenia. Lobotomies, however, caused irreparable brain damage in patients, greatly reducing their quality of life and ability to function. Worldwide, there may have been up to 150,000 lobotomies performed. And during its peak between 1949 and 1952, approximately 5,000 lobotomies were performed each year in the United States. Hubbard's Dianetics came out during this period, and he likely would have heard about or read the 1949 Newsweek article that chronicled the growing opposition to the practice of lobotomies within the psychiatric community. An additional factor that diminished the professional image of psychiatry between the 1940s and 1960s, especially in America, was the widespread use of psychoanalysis. Now, I found this, this part uh, kind of interesting. Let's continue here with the quote. Without scientifically based diagnoses, the psychoanalytic focus on talk as treatment destabilized psychiatry's professional and medical status. Even so, psychiatry maintained that it was based in scientific knowledge, and pseudoscientific psychoanalysis remained a viable subfield within a small number of university departments into the early 1990s. End quote. So, so Dianetics could not really have been better timed in terms of hitting the public and the public's response to it, which was overwhelmingly positive when it first came out. 
It was called The Bolt from the Blue and was a runaway bestseller from coast to coast here in the United States. And that bestselling status went over to the UK as well and into Europe, where Hubbard pretty quickly set up offices, I think starting in the UK and then going on, I think in 1951, he went on some vacation in, in Europe and started making overtures to set up offices there. And now, of course, Scientology has churches all throughout Europe and, and the UK. So uh, there was an effort there to counter Dianetics with, you know, how the horrors of psychiatry and how this sort of do-it-yourself therapy was such a more humane and simple and easy treatment. And, of course, like I mentioned before, Hubbard was over-promising, to say the least. So people were very, very avid to get hold of this because they wanted solutions to memory problems and physical problems and psychosomatic illnesses. As time went on, of course, more social groups and social activism started engaging against these barbaric practices that psychiatry was involved in. And I, myself, when I was a Scientologist, very much believed that most of those practices that psychiatry was engaged in during that time were still being continued in one form or another. Hubbard talked for years in his lectures about transorbital leucotomies, calling them ice pick lobotomies, which in essence is what they were, and far from any kind of an effective or humane treatment. So psychiatry definitely has its black marks in its history. And they deserved every bit of, of social backlash that they got for engaging in those brutal treatments, we'll say, for uh, really, you know, torture and, and in some cases just outright murder. People, when faced with a, a long history of, uh, of psychiatry, you look at the history of it, you look at the mental institutions and, and houses that people were being put in who had very serious mental issues or psychosis through the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. And you see, you know, Bedlam, you see these, um, uh, these, these places, these asylums where people were put. And they were bad. I mean, there were, there were people there who I think were trying to help people uh, in these bad, sorry mental states and had no idea what they were doing. And so we're experimenting with this and experimenting with that. And I'm certainly not going to be uh, someone who rationalizes some of the brutal and, uh, you know, real, real torture techniques that were used against some of these insane people. Uh, it was awful. It was absolutely horrifying. And that is, that is part of psychiatry's actual history. So um, as we'll get into, of course, the problem with Scientology, and, and when I was a Scientologist, I'm just saying as an example, I had a sort of a fixed idea that this was this was how psychiatry was, is, and always would be. And that was why I lended my support to and believed what L. Ron Hubbard said and what CCHR and Scientology were doing to fight this. And of course, then came um, psychotropics. And these came pretty shortly after the publication of Dianetics. I think it was 1952 when the first ones came around. In fact, just as an additional note on that psychiatry attitude that I had when I was in Scientology, one of the first things I did when I got out of Scientology that first year in 2013 was I was starting to challenge my ideas as to what I had learned in Scientology. And I actually grabbed a, a book and, and read about the um, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is, which is what psychiatry uses to diagnose uh, mental illnesses. And, of course, I had been told in Scientology that this book was, you know, wholly pseudoscientific, complete nonsense, that everything in it was based on just opinions and not any facts, and that psychiatry was just this big pseudoscientific fraud. So I thought to myself, you know, I better actually sort this out for myself as to whether psychiatry is good or bad or evil, or is, it, is it a black and white thing or what's going on. And so I read that book on the DSM. I did a lot of study on the Internet about this. This was one of two things that I tackled straight away, the other one being the homophobia that exists in Scientology. I also tackled that head on and, and uh, found out I was wholly wrong in all of my attitudes about uh, the LGBT community, um, that, I was, that I had you know, been homophobic. And I sort of educated myself out of that because I'm not, I'm not that now. <laughs> I have nothing against it. But when I was in Scientology, I very much did. 
Same with psychiatry. I had a very black and white view of it. And after educating myself about it, I realized that I had been totally on this, you know, in this black and white world, that everything about psychiatry was wrong and every one of them was evil and they must be destroyed. And I learned a little bit of nuance, like I do with everything when I start educating myself on it and start learning more about uh, what's really going on, whether it's, you know, politics or sports or, or entertainment or whatever the field is that, uh, that I'm looking into. I always find this to be the case that where you have these black and white memes and, and ideas, when you do a deep dive and go into what I call three-dimensional thinking about something rather than just two-dimensional surface-level thinking, you find that there's all kinds of good and there's all kinds of bad and there's all kinds of everything in between. And that's really more an accurate reflection of how reality will, really works. So in the paper here from Kent and uh, Tara Manka, um, there is uh, a comparison of psychiatry and Scientology. And this was actually pretty illuminating and interesting. So I'm going to quote from this again. Quote, Precise figures vary among sources that discuss psychiatric treatment successes. The National Alliance on Mental Illness in 1997 made a comparison between successes in mental health treatment and general medications and provided some basic numbers concerning success rates. Now, before I continue here, I just want to say that L. Ron Hubbard said over and over again uh, throughout his lectures and, and writings that psychiatry could not cure anyone could not help anyone, was only interested in degrading and brutalizing and pushing people further, further down into the mud. That was very much how Hubbard positioned anything having to do with psychiatry. So his, so the only uh, claim that I had, uh, or the only idea that I had when I was in Scientology was it's all bad, all wrong. Okay, so it's kind of illuminating getting some numbers here to actually talk about this with some reality. Quote, Treatment outcomes for people with even the most serious mental illnesses are comparable to outcomes for well-established general medical or surgical treatments for other chronic diseases. The early treatment success rates for mental illnesses are 60 to 80%, well above the approximately 40 to 60% success rates for common surgical treatments for heart disease. The Illinois chapter of that same organization indicated that treatment success for bipolar disorder was 80%, major depression was 65%, and schizophrenia was 45%. Of course, treating mental health problems successfully involves numerous issues, including the progression of the condition at the time of intervention, patients' compliance with prescription regimes, coexisting conditions, possibly age, gender, and various social factors, etc. Nevertheless, Conservative estimates place psychiatry success rates for containing or reversing symptoms, not curing, between 45% and 80%. Treatments also exist for various personality disorders. Significantly half or more of the people who seek psychiatric treatment for a range of conditions are likely to receive positive outcomes. Evaluating or comparing the success of Scientology's isolated treatment of psychotics is impossible because Scientology does not publicize the number of its members who suffer from that condition as the organization defines it or undergo its supposed treatment regime, nor has it run randomized controlled trials to test its techniques as would be required by contemporary science. What we do have, however, are accounts of Scientology's dismal failures to effectively treat psychotics, even to the point of apparently harming some of them. Now, before I carry on with this quote here, I want to just point out that I've done some videos recently with um, a former Scientologist, highly trained, uh, Sonny, who um, helped me go over what was Scientology's views on mental illness and how Scientology goes about treating or dealing with people who have mental disorders or have experienced some kind of a psychotic break. And we go into great detail in that series. And if you haven't watched it, I highly recommend checking it out. Of course, I'll put a, a link to the playlist on that in the show notes here. So you can check that out. To carry on with the paper here, quote, well before Hubbard detailed his techniques in the 1974 introspection rundown publication, 
Scientologists had been isolating members who appeared to have mental breakdowns in what they thought would be quiet environments in failed efforts to calm them sufficiently so that they could be audited. The first account about which we know was from the mid-1950s. In mid-1955, a person named Estrid Anderson Humphreys received an out-of-court settlement in a lawsuit that she filed against L. Ron Hubbard, the Church of Scientology, the Hubbard Dianetic Research Foundation, the Hubbard Association of Scientologists, and others for $9,000 in damages. She had claimed that her house near Phoenix, Arizona, was extensively damaged by persons, the suit charged, with seriously deranged minds who were placed there for care and treatment. It charges these deranged persons broke windows, tore out entire window casements, pulled loose electrical fixtures, tore and broke great holes in the walls and ceilings, and broke off doors, screen doors, and cabinets, and did other serious damage. Now, of course, that came from, that was in Phoenix, Arizona. This was in mid-1955. Hubbard had set up shop in Phoenix, Arizona in the 1954, 1953, that time period, and uh, set up the Church of Scientology there. That was actually where they say Scientology really started and where he, you know, had uh, been doing a great deal of lecturing and research into exteriorizing people, popping them out of their bodies as, as, a, as a spiritual entity so that they could see the room and travel around and go tour the sun and the moon and the stars. And literally, this, these were the kinds of things that they were imagining that they were doing during that time. And of course, what we see here is that some people had very, very negative reactions to that kind of therapy, we'll call it, or counseling or auditing, whatever, you know, we'll just call it auditing because that's, that's what Scientology calls it. And it really isn't therapy and it really isn't counseling. So they were having some, um, you know, debilitating effects on some of their members and were locking them up in an effort to keep them contained and calm them down and get them back into a state of mind where they could relate to the world again. So I wonder how many, you know, I'm certainly not going to find anywhere in Scientology's materials how many people Hubbard uh, maybe drove insane with his techniques during that early 1950s period, but certainly more than one person because Estrid Anderson Humphreys was suing the church, and in 1955, $9,000 was a lot more than it is today. Now, of course, you'll also remember in the talk that I did with Sonny how we talked about how Hubbard formulated the introspection rundown on the ship in the early 1970s, the ship called the Apollo. This was the, the, the ship Hubbard was sailing around on in the Mediterranean off the coast of uh, Spain and Portugal. During that time, there was a guy named Bruce who was a Sea Org member, and he ended up getting locked up and tearing down, the, trying to tear down the walls and get out of this uh, confinement that he was in, and somehow through slipping him notes under the door, Hubbard uh, had you know conversations with this guy, uh, and he, otherwise he was kept in complete isolation, and he was you know in a very very bad way, and eventually after a few days or weeks of this he came out of that, and so Hubbard thought as because he had been slipping this guy notes and talking to him, that he had somehow effected a cure for psychosis. And that was the claim Hubbard made in his introspection rundown uh, issues and bulletins that he wrote in that same year. To carry on with the paper now, quote, similar isolations continued into the 1990s. In 1990, 31-year-old Marianne Conan had Scientology family members lock her up in a cell-like bedroom in a house near Los Angeles. When authorities located her, she was Wearing a shirt and pants but no shoes, her legs were bruised, and scratches covered her wrists and neck, but she was otherwise uninjured. Press accounts strongly suggested that her family had placed her on the introspection rundown. In 1994, the British newspaper The Independent ran a detailed account about Scientologists whom the organization had put into isolation. After one German man lost control and started screaming in 1991, Scientologists put him in an isolated room and locked him up for two weeks before sending him back to Germany. During that time, he was incontinent 
and his custodians only tried communicating with him through writing so as not to have sound upset him. Remember what we were talking about with Bruce on the ship. Another German was put in isolation in 1993, but she eventually escaped and police sent her back home. After treating a number of persons who had either been in isolation or had guarded isolated Scientologists, British psychiatrist Betty Tilden indicated, quote, they come out of it suffering from something very similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, the prisoner syndrome. There is hyperarousal, flashbacks, fear, and obsessions. It is very nasty. So, end quote on that. That came from that paper. And, of course, we then go in time here through the 1990s. We then end up with Lisa McPherson in 1995-96 time period at, the, at, at FLAG in Florida, where I think maybe these Germans might have been isolated as well if they weren't isolated at some facility in Europe. So this introspection rundown has been something Scientologists have been using for quite some time in order to treat people who have psychotic breaks, most likely because of Scientology. So rather than even potentially turn these people over to competent medical professionals or facilities that are more suited to deal with people who have these kind of problems, the Scientologists instead lock these people literally in closets or in basements, uh, you know, tie them down, force feed them, and in the case of Lisa McPherson and who knows how many others, end up in wrongful death uh, because these people end up dying in their care. They address Lisa McPherson in the paper, uh, quote, Scientologists claim to believe that after isolation, McPherson would communicate through auditing. According to Scientology's attorney and spokesperson, Elliot Abelson, McPherson was ineligible to receive Scientology counseling there at the Fort Harrison Hotel because she was having trouble sleeping, <laughs> the understatement of the century. He said counseling cannot be done until a person had six to eight hours sleep and become sufficiently stable to receive counseling. As such, Scientology's isolation treatment regimes for psychotics appear to have shown dire consequences with little to no measurable improvement in patients' mental conditions. On a broad level, psychiatry's principles of medical ethics present members' professional responsibilities to patients' rights, dignity, and access to medical care, and under their guidance, no ethical psychiatrist would participate in the kinds of confinements, constraints, and pseudo-medical treatment that Scientologists apparently imposed upon their fellow members. End quote. Now, I'd just like to take the opportunity to point out now the irony of the fact that Scientology, that L. Ron Hubbard in 1950, 1950s, was saying that, that psychiatry was too brutal, too murderous, too torturous to allow people to go and get psychiatric treatment. And now, when you look at L. Ron Hubbard's treatment for those same conditions, you find brutality, torture, and even death. So... In a way, psychiatry has come 180 degrees over this time period where they have made enormous strides and changes in their behavior and in their treatment methodologies, whereas Scientology has taken on the same things, are doing the same things to their own members who have psychotic breaks that psychiatry used to do and that, that Hubbard railed against. I find that scary, uh, amongst other words I could, I could choose. And in case it's not clear, Scientology didn't learn their lesson after Lisa McPherson died on the Fort Harrison, uh, on the church property. Uh, they continue to use these isolation techniques and this introspection rundown. And we have proof of that uh, through Tony Ortega's blog as recently as 2015 and 2017, there were a couple stories. Um, in, the, in February of 2015, uh, on Tony Ortega's blog, The Underground Bunker, I will quote from a story. Last May, which means in May of 2014, in a small Arkansas town, a sheriff's deputy arrived at a large house to help an ambulance crew with an unusual call. He went into the basement of the house 
which had a ground floor entry, and on the stairway leading to the kitchen on the next floor, there was a woman sitting on the stairs. We're going to call this woman Candace. She was with her caregiver, a man we're going to call Jim. Here's how the, deputy, the sheriff's deputy described the scene in an incident report which was obtained by the underground bunker. Upon my arrival, Candace was on the stairwell of the house with her caregiver trying to get her down the stairs. She was extremely bloody, and her skin appeared to be blue as if she had already lost a tremendous amount of blood. She was refusing to come down the stairs, but she was bleeding very badly, and there was blood all over the area where she was at. The 32-year-old woman had cut her hand deeply in what appeared to be a suicide attempt. Her caregiver, Jim, would later claim she had broken a small bottle in frustration and had accidentally hurt herself. The deputy watched as the ambulance crew and Jim tried in vain to get her down the stairs. Jim explained that she, quote, has had mental issues and he was paid to care for her, the deputy noted. Another deputy had to handcuff Candace to get her down the stairs so they could get her on a gurney and into the ambulance. But before the ambulance could drive away, Claire escaped from the vehicle and began running away. She was caught, and then she was bundled into the back of a patrol car that took her to a local hospital. Her condition was shocking, the first deputy noted. She smelled as if she had not bathed in about two months. Her hands and toes were black with dirt. Her hair was matted into a knot. I was contacted by the doctor at the ER who advised that he had some bungee cords that it appeared that she had been tied up with. He advised that she had some ligature marks on her wrist that were consistent with being restrained. For more than a year, Candace had been held in a basement in a small Arkansas town and was found with evidence that she had been tied down with bungee cords, allowed to live in filthy conditions, and was malnourished. Her caregiver, Jim, has not been charged with a crime, but he was surprisingly candid when he was asked later in a sworn deposition to explain how and why a malnourished, filthy woman had lived in his basement, and while he got paid $750 a week to care for her. It turned out that he was happy to explain the situation. He was a Scientologist. The treatment he was giving the woman was standard Scientology technology, quote-unquote, and the year before, his treatment of her had begun at a Scientology-style rehab facility in the Tennessee countryside. In fact, Jim was convinced his care was the only way Candace would ever get well, and he was fighting to get custody of her so he could continue to heal her with Scientology. Today, Candace is a ward of the state of Arkansas, deeply unwell and living at a state hospital, and this is how she ended up there. And Tony then goes on to tell the entire backstory of Candace, again, not her real name, and how she ended up in this Scientologist's care, and how despite her condition, her screaming to run away, the fact that an ambulance had to be called, deputies came in, that this guy was so delusional with Scientology and Hubbard's rhetoric that he thought he was actually helping her. That's how insane Scientologists actually are when it comes to mental health. Uh, and in 2017, in May 3rd, May 3rd, 2017, uh, Tony published another article about that Tennessee facility and a man named Mark Valieris who ran it and how he had uh, had a couple people in his care and the police, one of them had finally gotten hold of a phone and had called 911 and gotten the police out there and these guys ended up being charged with criminal uh they were indicted for criminal activity because they'd had these people locked up in these little um, huts on the property in a vain attempt to engage in more of this uh, mental health treatment, according to L. Ron Hubbard's uh, dictates, rather than doing something sensible like actually helping them. The bottom line is with this is that Scientologists are not actually interested in helping people so much as they're interested in, well, their ideologues. You know, they when it comes to mental health, it's their way or the highway. And, you know, they're not, if, if what they're doing doesn't look like it's working, they don't stop. They just keep doubling down on it. 
And as a result, like we've, like we've talked about on this podcast and, and in my videos on my channel, people have died. This is not a joke. And giving people over to mental, you know, who have mental, serious mental health issues to Scientologists is not going to result in these people getting the help that they really need. This is really important. Yet, Scientology continues to double down on this over and over again, despite the evidence that is that I'm giving you that that is out there to be seen by anybody. They keep thinking that Hubbard's way is the only way and that psychiatry is so evil and so bad, so awful, and anybody related to it and anybody having to do with psychology is so bad, so evil, and so awful. Despite the statistics that I read to you earlier in this podcast, they don't look at those statistics. They just listen to Hubbard. And this is what destructive cult thinking does to you. Now, in the paper, there was one last mention made of something here, which I'll go over, which has to do with where things stand now with Scientology and with CCHR. Quote, Scientology announced the opening of a national office in Washington, D.C., ostensibly to, quote, coordinate its many social and humanitarian initiatives on a national and international level, end quote but also, presumably, to lobby government officials on issues related to Scientology's interests. Two of the dignitaries who spoke complimented Scientology on previous lobbying efforts. One of the programs that it hoped to strengthen was the Scientology Volunteer Ministers, the world's largest independent relief force providing emergency response at major disaster sites for more than a decade, according to Scientology. Unstated, of course is the goal of the volunteer ministers to eliminate the role of psychiatry and mental health professionals at those sites. Consequently, the United States now has a federally tax-exempt organization, inclusively called the Church of Scientology, using taxpayers' money in the nation's capital to lobby officials and agencies about the destruction of psychiatric practices. That's where we've come to now. And that office in D.C. is just going gangbusters because these full-time Scientologists and, and in these offices, they're manned by Sea Org members who are 24-7. These people have nothing to do all day but forward Scientology's agenda and try to lobby government officials. So this is a full-time activity for them. And they are pushing this kind of treatment that Scientology engages in, and they call it humanitarian. And they call psychiatry the butchers. Well, psychiatry, as we've gone over, certainly has a history of that. But psychiatry has changed. Psychiatry has evolved. Psychiatry is not what it was in 1950. Well, what does CCHR think about psychiatry? Here is a list of the documentaries that they have put together. Psychiatry, an industry of death. The hidden enemy inside psychiatry's covert agenda. The Age of Fear, Psychiatry's Reign of Terror. Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Psychiatry's Deadliest Scam. Dead Wrong, How, psych how Psychiatric Drugs Can Kill Your Child. And finally, Marketing of Madness, Are We All Insane? And I find it ironic in that last one that Scientology would push out a message saying that psychiatry are the ones who are saying everybody's got a mental illness, everybody's got a problem, everybody's insane. When I know for a fact in the world of Scientology that Scientologists actually do believe that everybody who's not a Scientologist is crazy, that they are driven by the impulses of their reactive mind and are under an almost hypnotic daze under all the mental stress and trauma from their past and it is only Scientology which has the cure to that. That's what Scientologists actually think. But they foist all that off on psychiatry and make, make them out to be the bad guys. So I just don't want any false equivalencies here. And I think I've made my point pretty clear through the, throughout the podcast. So with all of that, I thought that this might give some perspective and some idea of how I have come to view psychiatry personally as a former Scientologist. And how I see that there's all kinds of bad in psychiatry, but, but they have changed and evolved and improved. 
And I think that they are making honest efforts and trying to apply some degree of scientific method and methodology to their practices and are trying to uh, figure out how do you, how does the brain work? How does, how does the mind work? Is the brain the mind? How do, you know, what is consciousness? What is, what is free will? I mean, these are very, very deep-seated questions that a lot of philosophers and um, psychologists and neurologists are taking on. And we don't have solid answers on any of this. Not by a long shot, do we? Nobody understands consciousness. I mean, there are people who put forward various theories, various ideas, but this is not well-known, well-figured-out, all-taped. You know, no, not at all. This is very much a work in progress, and I think it will be for quite some time. And I think until we have multidisciplinary approaches to this where neurology talks to psychology and talks to psychiatry, because right now they're not talking as much as they need to, I think if they get to talking to one another and working on these problems together, I think we'll start seeing much more, uh, I think we'll see some speed up in, in the effectiveness of what these guys are, are pushing forward. And tempered you know, with pharmaceutical treatments because we know that some pharmaceuticals work on some people at least some of the time. But why? Why do they work here and they don't work there? Why do they cause all these side effects, which are really just effects, not side effects? It, those are the effects of the drugs. I'm not down with all those psych, side effects. And, psych, and I don't think psychotropic medications are any kind of magic uh, bullet solution to anybody's problems. But they do help sometimes. And when they help, that's a good thing. And I think that maybe some psychiatrists, I'm not even going to say maybe, I think some psychiatrists have become pill pushers. That's not good. Um, that's not practicing good medicine. That's not treating the person in front of you. That's treating your, your patients as an assembly line activity. And that's, that's no good. I'm not going to support that kind of psychiatry. But where people are making honest efforts to really try to dig in through talk therapy, pharmaceutical use, um, group therapy, social therapy. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can approach people and help them out. And I think that we're still in the middle of figuring all this stuff out. And I think the more we acknowledge that and just kind of roll with what's going on and, and, and keep our eyes open and, and, and figure out as best we can how to help people out who are having rough times, I think we'll, I think the degree we do all those things, we'll, we'll move the ball forward and we'll get some positive things going. Scientology can't do any of that. All they can do is stick with Hubbard's words and Hubbard's words, we know, don't cure people and don't help people with mental illnesses. So thanks very much for coming around and listening or watching this week. I appreciate your time and attention. If you like my channel and what I'm doing here, consider supporting me through Patreon. The link is below uh, in the show notes. It is patreon.com slash Chris Shelton and or throwing some love my way through PayPal or other donation services. Uh, your, you guys and your support is what keeps my show going and keeps my channel going. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.